Sequel Quest, Episode 70, The Oscar Special. Welcome to Sequel Quest, the podcast where Adam, Jeff, and Jeremy invite you on a cinematic adventure to create prequels, sequels, and reboots to your favorite movie franchises. Joined by special guests along the way, Sequel Quest is go for launch. So let the adventure begin now. And the winner for Best Podcast 2018 is Sequel Quest! All right, gents and ladies, <laughs> I don't want to forget them. The Oscars crowd would have my head if I did. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, we watched the Oscars yesterday, and let's get into it. With me in the Sequel Quest studio is Adam. Hello, hello. Jeff. Yes. And Jeff's wife, Judy. Welcome back. Hello. We are all in competition for that jet ski. We are just yeah. keeping it brief. <laughs> Helen Mirren comes on the side, right? That was no, not Helen Mirren <laughs> not included, he said. <laughs> That's kind of on the cliche checklist now, isn't it? Hitting on Helen Mirren? Yeah. yeah. She is very glamorous. All right. So we didn't discuss this last year. There was a major controversy. And the, if you haven't heard, and we're living under a rock for the last year, exactly. the winner for Best Picture was misannounced. Somebody handed off the wrong envelope that was already opened to the hosts, and they announced that La La Land had won for Best Picture, when in reality they didn't. Everybody got up there on stage. Everybody for La La Land, they're ready. And then uh, they're figuring it out, meanwhile, you know, while they're gathering. And that, that was the saddest moment, was that director of La La Land or producer, whoever yeah. it was, they had to call out, I'm sorry, there was a mistake. Moonlight, you won. Right. This and literally show the card to the camera in case people still thought it was a joke. Yeah. Uh -huh. and, then, and then you have Warren Beatty also showing it, like, this is the one I was given. This is yeah. what I was given. It wasn't yeah. my fault fault <laughs> yeah well and it's crazy and that's what i would say and it was kind of when you first called it a controversy jeremy i was kind of thinking i don't know if i would use the word controversy as opposed to like the greatest screw up in oscar history maybe yeah and especially right then like not only was it a classic mess up but it was announcing best picture it was the climax of the entire thing yeah you don't get any bigger than that now judy we've heard that you are a big fan of the oscars yeah i mean i've been watching it every year almost without fail since i was a kid not that i agree with them mostly or anything i just <laughs> enjoy it and even in college, it became like a big thing. We would get a bunch of food and we'd watch all the red carpet and pick our favorites and play Oscar bingo. So I have a friend and she has aptly coined it that it is our Super Bowl since <laughs> that is the same type of buildup and excitement that we get about the Oscars as it seems everyone else gets about the Super Bowls. It's just a fun thing, especially as I've watched more movies and grown up a bit. I don't necessarily put as much um, weight behind like who wins and who loses because you know there's a lot more to it than just this is the best but it's still fun to see if you can guess who's gonna win and um, so yeah so I've been watching it forever and I was telling Jeff I kind of had low expectations for this year's show because I knew that nothing could top that moment at the end <laughs> of last year's Oscars because honestly 
that is the craziest thing that could have happened at the Oscars and nothing as crazy will ever happen again. Like that is like calling out the wrong name for best picture (laughs) is the epitome of like worst case scenario. And even the way it played out where everyone was already on the stage, like you said, and no one knew what was going on. And there's a guy on the stage with a headphone, like looking (laughs) like he's kicking people (laughs) off stage. Yeah, I knew going into this year, number one, they were not going to call any wrong name <laughs> yeah. or someone was going to lose their life. But <laughs> one more anecdote about that. I have a friend who works in event, um, like event planning, and she was actually at the Oscars last year. She's always at the Oscars. She's always working like behind the scenes. And so we always were tech, we were texting her like as the show is going on and she's like, oh, I just saw Justin Timberlake and, you know, different things like that. And so for her, she saw how that happened, but she was backstage. And so she texted us right after it happened and asked, was that as awkward on TV as it was in the room? Because, you know, she didn't know what was coming across on TV. And so we were replying back like, no, that was the most awkward thing ever. Like crazy. <laughs> like just to know that in the room people were baffled and at home people were baffled. And it was just it wasn't a good moment, but it was pretty classic. Memorable at least. You only get that on Sequel Quest. <laughs> it's an exclusive backstage exclusive at the Oscars. backstage information. But it, it was interesting. And we were talking about this today, too is that reflecting back to last year with that moment is that if they would have given that envelope to anybody else other than Warren Beatty, they probably would have said, and I've got the wrong envelope and they would have gone and gotten the correct one. But Warren Beatty was apparently trying to play it off and buying time for them to give him the right envelope. And because Faye Dunaway was up there and Faye Dunaway being who Faye Dunaway was and thinking Warren Beatty is who Warren Beatty is, he thought Warren Beatty was joking. So all she did was see La La Land he was showing her the thing to say, look, I've got the wrong card. She just saw La La Land and said it right off the bat. And it was like, and Warren Beatty's like, what did you just do? Yeah. And so it was just like, it was a perfect storm where only like, you know, lightning strikes once, I guess. Yeah, Jimmy Kimmel did not let them live it down this year. Price Waterhouse was mentioned quite a bit uh, throughout the ceremony. Little jabs here and there. Like they've assured us that it will not happen again. It is their top priority. And he's like, what were you doing last year? What was your top priority then? (laughs) After your name is called, give it a second. Don't rush up here. Just wait and see. You know, I have to say, traditionally, I tune into the Oscars every couple of years. Not my big event because I've usually not seen most of the films. Uh But I got way more emotional Hmm. watching this day after broadcast of the Oscars on Hulu than I had any right to. Like, I was literally tearing up during so much of the ceremony. I think it was just the overall expressions of gratitude that were coming out from people. And plus, just like there was this real, you know, inclusive nature, right? This social consciousness they were pushing. And I think also, you know, just as a creative person on whatever small level that I am, seeing that validation that these people are getting for putting themselves out there is very relatable to me. I'm not necessarily a fan of how Jimmy Kimmel kind of up top invited people to start making their political statements and their speeches and all these things. It's just silly movie awards. I don't know if that's really what the purpose of this is. He's like, the world is watching. So say what you have to say. They're counting on us. But keep it short so you can win a jet ski right yeah like that was yeah i think that was what he's going for kind of that tongue-in-cheek it's both sort of a thing and on the flip side though because like and i don't know if you guys watch the golden globes 
the Golden Globes were right in the middle, I think, of the whole controversy, the sexual harassment and everything. Oh, right, right, right. Really clear. I mean, especially like Kevin Spacey has owned the Golden Globes and the Emmy Awards and all of that. And so the fact that he was not there was pretty glaring. And I mean, obviously Harvey Weinstein and just like the list goes on and on and on. And so for me, when we watched that, it was really heavy. And there was this cloud over the entire thing. I felt like not that they shied away from it. Like you said, Adam, there was definitely plenty of people talking about it. And it's an important thing that I think needs to be talked about. But I thought all things considered, they still allowed for the grandeur and the emotion of the moment not to be shrouded in a cloud of all the stuff that's gone on. Yeah, and more so even for me, I think what I enjoyed about it is because I think there are those tendencies, you know, over the years for people to make political statements. And here they had so much going on in the backstage politics of Hollywood itself Mm. that they had enough to deal with it. Oh, you know what? You have every right to bring this up. You have every right to talk about this. You're not a head of state. You're not my congressman. I don't need to hear this from you. But what's going on in your industry and your in your business? Yes. Go ahead and make your comments and be proud of the the steps forward. That's what I felt like mostly was positivity, right? They're saying, this is the beginning, but look how far we've come. That it was kind of the sentiment over and over again that was being brought up. But Jeremy, I know you saw a little bit of backlash on Twitter, you said, right? From certain groups over a few of the statements that maybe were leaning a little bit more towards inclusive for one group, but not another. Yeah, so Emma Stone got up and she was announcing the nominees for Best Director. And she announces, we have our four male nominees and Greta Gerwig uh, just kind of pointing out and trying to put emphasis on the fact that we have a female up for best director and black Twitter did not take kindly to that at all. They were all over her for that. And that was the thing I felt was going on throughout the entire ceremony because there was the whole sentiment of, you know, representation matters and and all these things, which is important. But it felt like each group. So like the women were all like, look at how wonderful we are. You know, Francis McDormand, especially all the women stand up, which was, you know, great and important. But then and then everybody that was of Latin descent, there was a lot of stuff about Mexico and Viva Mexico and all this stuff. Again, it, it was just each group was really kind of vying for for their moment in the spotlight. I don't, I'm not saying that's bad, but it felt like instead of everybody just talking in a general sense, they were saying, my group, here we are, we're doing it. All right, now over here, yeah, my group, and we're over right. here, we're doing it. So everybody's celebrating together, but were they maybe a little bit too for each other on their side? I don't know. What did you guys think about that, Jeff and Judy, as you were watching? Um, I don't think I actually saw that exact moment with Emma Stone, but I, I did read about the backlash and stuff, and I do think some some of it is overblown because people want right. to, everyone wants to like get mad about something. But um, <laughs> I think it was kind of a misstep on her part because it was, yeah, she was pointing out the importance of having Greta Gerwig in that category, but then forgetting that, you know, having Jordan Peele and yeah. Guillermo del Toro in that category that year was also a big deal and important. And I think reflecting back to the Golden Globes, Natalie Portman threw in her thing at the directing category right. where she threw in that thing about like these five men. And at that time, it was just all dudes. But either way, she was pointing out, you know, especially again, like in the heat of what was going on at that time with the gender issues in Hollywood. So I think it was kind of like a little bit of a misstep. 
but also, okay, let's calm down. (laughs) Right. You know, I I understand what she was trying to point out that it was still pretty rare to have a female director nominated. Yeah. um, But people were, I think, wanting to remind her of the other part of it is that, like, you really don't have, usually it's just white men. So, you know, to get anyone else in there is something that they want to celebrate. But I don't think she was intentionally sliding the other groups. I think she was just focusing on what she identified with, perhaps. Yeah, that's that's essentially what it boiled down to with her. You know, and I appreciated that sentiment of representation all around. Again, it was a big deal. I think it was handled well. I got very emotional in several parts, as I mentioned. But the one thing I walked away with from this show is that Frances McDormand is a real weirdo. And I know that goes totally against what they were going for, but not because she's a woman, not because anything. She was so awkward and she was stomping around the stage and so I'm just like, I don't, is she on drugs? Like, what was going on? <laughs> She's talking about her clan. What is your clan? I don't know what you're telling us here. And I thought, her, again, her moment of getting all the women to stand up, inspirational, wonderful. But everything else she was saying, I it could not connect. I did not know what she was thinking. And well, her, her body language threw me off. If you marry a Cohen brother. Right. Like... Yeah. <laughs> it's but those yeah. actors, man. They're, they're just an odd bunch. But one moment I thought was really interesting because who really pays attention to the animated short category but (laughs) Kobe Bryant now has an Oscar and I was like I can just imagine Shaq like in his house (laughs) he's like no I was in steel I was Kazam I was blue chip and blue chip but you know what I'm saying like he must have he he already hates Kobe and that now he's got that and looming over him I know they were talking about on the radio today they're like so we now live in a world where Kobe Bryant has more Oscars than Liam Neeson. Than, and like they just went through a list of all these great Alfred actors. Alfred Hitchcock. Alfred Hitchcock. Kobe Bryant, he got the award or he was the subject? It's a short film based on something he wrote. Like, I don't know what it was. Something he wrote for a different purpose, but then they turned it into a little cartoon thing. So he produced it. And so he, yeah, he was up there to accept the award. And I just thought that was crazy. <laughs> well, I thought it was cool that he acknowledged. He's like, Look, I know I know I'm a basketball player. We're supposed to shut up and show our our stuff on the court. So I'll just say this, you know, like he acknowledged, he's like, I kind of don't belong here. I understand. <laughs> so I thought that was cool of him. On a side note, in case anyone hasn't Wikipedia searched best picture winners, I did see that in the 90 times that we've done the Oscars, the 90 award winners, there have been two sequels that have won best picture. Oh, Do you guys that? know other than Judy? I know Judy knows. Do you guys know those two? Oh, I saw that. Uh, I'm trying to think what they were. I know one was Return of the King. Yeah, yeah. And then the other one's an easy one. Oh, Godfather 2. Godfather 2. Now, the tougher one, and I, I probably have to look it back up again to see, is there have been six sequels that have been nominated but not won. The one that I'm guessing you guys will never get because I would have never got is The Bells of St. Mary. That's what was the, mm, what was it a sequel yeah. to? <laughs> I, I have no idea. That's why I said <laughs> Toy Story. Maybe. Toy Story 3. Oh. Lord of the Rings Two Towers. The Shocker, which I even told Judy, I'm like, I literally do not believe I am reading this right now. Godfather Part 3. They just felt obligated. They're like, it's a Godfather film. It should be nominated. Yeah, exactly. Like Meryl Streep. Oh, she was in a movie this year. She's up for Best Actress. Anyway. But talking about Best Picture, let's let's get into that. Because I know last year, our inaugural Oscars special, we really didn't have a lot to say about the films that had come out. Because... 
there just there didn't seem to be too much of an interest there. I think we had seen one or two. This year, I feel like maybe we're a little bit more prepared. The fact that I may be the one who's actually seen the most Best Picture nominated <laughs> films is a little scary, yeah. <laughs> but I'll offer my insight where I can. So let's, let's just kind of go down the list. I think we have to start off with the two I don't think any of us saw, uh, which is probably Call Me By Your Name and the three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri. Anybody see those? No, my... Anybody my... know those existed prior to right. the My mom just saw the three billboards, and so it was telling me a little bit about that. But yeah, we didn't get a chance to see those two. Yeah, I mean, you got you know Best Supporting Actor and Best Actress from that film. Whether or not it's the best story out there, we don't know, but there were some good performances, I guess. Unless Judy alluded to this earlier, the idea of sometimes you get a legacy nod, right? It's like, well, it's been long enough. You've been nominated enough times that now is your time and let's give you the award type thing. Do you think that's what happened with Frances McDormand? I don't know about... Uh, well, uh, she's won already, though. I think she won for Fargo. She won for Fargo. Oh, okay. Yeah. But it was it's one of those, at least like what my, from my mom's perspective, when she saw it, she said that Frances McDormand is maybe a very similar character in most roles that she has but it's a phenomenal character. Like she is an incredibly versatile and talented actress, not a character actress per se, but it's just she gives a strong performance in everything that she does. So it sounds like she was she was really, really good. She wasn't like Gary Oldman, where all of a sudden he didn't even look or sound or feel like Gary Oldman anymore. Yeah. It wasn't quite that, but it sounds like it was a very strong performance. Speaking of that, a quick little pitch too. Uh, uh, beforehand, one of Judy and my favorite YouTube channels is What Culture? And they did a, an Oscar predictions where they did like, this is who should win and this is who will win. And for Best Actress, they did say Francis McDormand will probably win. But I thought it was really interesting. He said who deserved to win was Margot Robbie for I, Tonya, And said that her performance as Tanya Harding was haunting. I mean, I remember, I don't know if you guys are maybe too young to remember Tanya Harding, but I remember when that happened. And I would have no interest in seeing a movie about that girl yeah, back then. But right. now I'm kind of interested to see, well, especially uh, yeah. hearing about that. Yeah, this is going to surprise you, Jeff, but I actually have the issue of Sports Illustrated that goes wow. over that whole controversy, really? everything as it was happening. Yeah, it's on the back of my toilet as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so, yes, I'm, I'm very familiar. I remember walking in on the news report of Nancy Kerrigan. Why? Why? Yeah. I thought she was some foreign lady. Like, I didn't know who she was because I wasn't paying attention. Nobody paid attention to figure skating before that, you know? <laughs> and suddenly it, it matters. So, yeah, I, Tanya, I also remember hearing about that just on a lot of podcasts that are hosted by actors in Hollywood that I listen to. And everybody's like, I got my screener for I, Tanya. And they all just make jokes about it constantly. And yet, here we have the Best Supporting Actress Award going to that film. Right? right and a nomination for best actress for margot robbie so i mean that's pretty impressive for a film that yeah seems like it's almost a joke right so now you have to watch it and find out but the film that is no joke and that's what i was curious to know for you guys is darkest hour for which gary oldman won his best actor oscar did you guys anybody take a look at that film no, no we haven't that that was on 
our list, but we hadn't got to it yet, though. Okay, if anybody wants to see it, it is in red box. But um, see, my stepfather is British, and he's turning 80 this year. And he was about two when the real events of this movie were happening. The Germans are bombing London. He said he vaguely remembers being moved out to the country for safety and hearing the radio reports and the planes flying overhead. So Churchill is his hero. So I've heard about that man many times over the dinner table over the years, but I really did not investigate and get deep into him. So watching this film really was helpful to me in that way. And I think for a movie that is all talking, I mean, it's literally all it is. There's like one scene of a, of a, some soldiers out of the field for like one minute, but the rest of the film is literally just, it's a Gary Oldman showcase making full use of his chameleon like ability. Like he does to transform into his characters. And I will say his British accent work is a little bit better than his Jim Gordon. I'm joking, <laughs> of course. Um, but but also the makeup work is really impressive. So they deserve that best makeup award that they got because that was really impressive. It did not call attention to itself. Now the lighting had a lot to do with that as well. But really the makeup and the performance were what really made that film shine. And there's a great scene, again, for people who haven't seen it, Look, there's a scene where he rides the subway to survey the common people to get their opinion on how he should move forward as, you know, the prime minister, as the leader of the country and saving these soldiers at Dunkirk and all that. So it's pretty interesting. Um, I'll also mention an actress in there that I've been seeing a lot of lately. Uh, her name is Lily James. Uh, and she's been in a lot of stuff like she was Cinderella in the live action Disney Cinderella. She was in Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. And I finally... <laughs> Into the mix of Oscar films I was watching, I decided to finally see Baby Driver. She's in that as well. Mm. Um, she, she reminds me of a British Heather Langenkamp. She's the one who played Nancy in the Nightmare on Elm Street films. But she's a really engaging actress. I, I'm curious to see where her career goes because she seems to be getting cast a lot right now. So I'm wondering if she there's a role out there waiting for her because she's got a, a strong presence. Uh, are you guys familiar with her work at all? Um, she was on Downton Abbey, but oh. not a big. She she was like a cousin of the family or something. Oh, oh yes, the, uh, mm. Rose. Yeah, so yeah. yeah. So, yeah okay. I knew her from that? that, but it wasn't exactly a meaty role. Right. She <laughs> was kind of supposed to be almost like a bimbo. She was like a flibberty gibbet. A flibberty gibbet. There you go. <laughs> yeah, she could flip between the two very well, which I think is especially Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. You see that a lot. She plays Lizzie. You know. But as far as Gary Oldman goes for you guys, is this, I mean, you haven't seen the film, but is there a particular role for him in your mind that stands out? I mean, are you guys big fans from, is it Harry Potter? Is it Batman? Is Actually, it was funny. We were talking about that is that I was kind of lamenting the fact because I've loved Gary Oldman ever since Fifth Element. I don't know if he stole the show, but he was phenomenal and oh, he yes. was unlike he normally was. And, you know, he was doing a, a character and he had the limp and just everything like that. I was kind of lamenting the fact that probably at this point, he's most known for what I think is his least impressive performance as Jim Gordon in the Dark Knight trilogy. Like right. that was very blah for him, I thought, compared to the character work that, yeah, that we see him doing in stuff like this or in Fifth Element or all those other things. Wait, I feel 
feel like there were a lot of people thanking Christopher Nolan throughout the awards this year. And I feel like Gary Oldman's like, thanks for nothing, Christopher Nolan. Because <laughs> Gary Oldman, his speech tells the director, whatever, he's like, it only took 20 years for us to finally work together, but look what you did, you know? So <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny. But the obvious double feature with that film then was Dunkirk. Right. Because, you know, you have the darkest hours about all the political machinations going on at home. And Dunkirk is about the soldiers in the field and saving them. Uh, did any of you guys see Dunkirk? No. Crickets. Crickets. More crickets. Okay. <laughs> well, here's the thing. The opening moments of the film made me think this was just the British saving Private Ryan, which is kind of which, what it feels like for the first half hour. But which, then, by the way, Adam, yeah. did you see it in the theaters or did you see it at home? No, I saw it at home. Okay. Because yeah. that was, and that just to, to real quick, that that was one of the things for me is that everything that I heard, even plus or minus, is it sounded like this was kind of like an experience, mm -hmm. like gravity was. And so for me, that was kind of the, because I missed the chance to see it in the theaters, I was kind of like, oh, well, now there's no rush to really see it at home. Well, see, now I watched it with earbuds in, you know, so I, I was definitely deep into the sound design, which is all the film won for, were the technical sound awards, which is certainly the audioscape they created. It was very immersive. If there was ever a movie that deserved the D-Box motion seat treatment. Definitely. The camera spends a lot of time bob it up and down in the water you know you're flying with fighter planes and stuff you know but the thing is it doesn't have a central narrative it's kind of disorienting it's it's kind of like Nolan's breakout film Memento where there's like all these intertwining stories that are told out of sequence. So that kind of confused me here and there, but overall, you know, I, I, I could see why it didn't win because there are emotional moments and there are decent performances, but Dunkirk feels like the Oscar equivalent of a summer blockbuster is mm. kind of what it is. Huh. It's like, you know, you, you got rid of superheroes. Good for you, Christopher Nolan, you know. And well, so, not totally. But, I mean, he still had Bane in a mask. <laughs> yes, Tom Hardy. And then you had Scarecrow in there as well. You have Cillian Murphy who's there. But it's it's almost like you took the stupid love story out of Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor and you're just left <laughs> with the bombing scenes. <laughs> or maybe the end of Titanic just stretched out to two hours. It's kind wow. of that feeling where you're like, all right, well, it's like you said, it's an experience. You're there with the soul but there's not really a story per se to follow. Good work, but maybe you focused a little bit too much on the visuals. Maybe if there was more to be told, if you gave us one character to follow. Now, the film that I know, I think we've all seen, and honestly, I feel like this is the People's Choice Award for Best Film. If we was basic on what did everybody see last year is Get Out, right? right? Where did you guys come into just knowing who Jordan Peele was? Well, obviously, Key and Peel, their yes. comedy sketch show. Yeah, I've, I've caught a couple of their skits on YouTube. You know, the substitute teacher one's great. I Especially for our show, there's one about the pitch meeting for Gremlins 2, oh, which geez. is hilarious. It is so fantastic. I love that so much. But I had been hearing about Get Out all throughout 2017. Like, again, a lot of podcasts just in passing. Yeah. Everybody's like, have you seen Get Out yet? It's amazing. But I'm just not, I'm not on the Blumhouse train to get into, like, their horror films so I never got around to seeing it where did you guys fall into as far as interest in seeing it 
Um, well, when it came out, I did hear a lot of really good stuff about it. But I don't tend to go see scarier type movies. That's not really my thing usually. So it was kind of like, okay, I probably won't see that. But we did, we did like watch it just, you know, last week or whatever ahead of the Oscars. And I think, I don't know, it's hard when something is so talked up that Mm. it's kind of like, it could never live up to all this hype that I've <laughs> right. heard all year. I'm just like, this is the greatest movie ever. So it's almost like if I had heard less about it, I might have been more impressed maybe. Not that it wasn't a good movie and not that it doesn't deserve a lot of praise, but just that it was just so, like I just kept hearing about it. So I think some of the surprise of it was lost, but it was a really good movie. And I think there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, I, I feel like this is the one of anything that you could really have a conversation about and most people can join in like because i feel like although it being labeled as oh a horror movie that got an oscar nomination it's really more of a thriller i mean yeah i don't great, know why they would say no, it's they, not a horror movie at all i don't yeah think. i mean it teases a generic slasher type character in the opening and then that's not at all the focus of the film uh, so they kind of do a bait and switch on you there i think comparing it to a horror movie is not I guess people don't call Jurassic Park a thriller, but for me, I would. Uh, that's usually the one that I that same level of intensity and like being chased and stuff like that. That's kind of where I uh, go with this. Or maybe like what what was that one with Matt Damon and the guys in the hat about trying to stop your love? You know, they're chasing oh, the secret the adjustment agent. Adjustment bureau. Yeah, the adjustment yeah. bureau. You know, maybe <laughs> you that's should see that. Judy's face right now. It's not <laughs> positive. Like, no, not, not at all. A good movie. Sorry. <laughs> but think about Get Out, like the, just the slow burn reveal of the truth about the situation Daniel Kelly's character finds himself in during the film is just perfect. It never has the peeling back the layers of an onion cliche been more accurate. No pun intended. But the fact that it won best original screenplay is so earned by Jordan Peele in this because the dialogue is so successful in Mm. making you believe in all these relationships up top being 100% invested in the characters that you literally feel personally betrayed as the film plays out and people are revealed and that it has a satisfying finale still it's just one of those things where you're like wow wow every step of the way the way it's plotted everything it's it's beautiful right which on a side note and i guess this is a spoiler but doesn't have to be i guess because i read this before i i saw this is that apparently the original film did not have that ending Apparently the ending was he gets recaptured and the audience in the first screener hated it where they're like, are you kidding me? And so then they ended up changing it and instead have the ending that they had. Now, one thing I want to bring up in this that I think we we need to get into it a little bit because after our Black Panther sequel chat review, I actually had a friend of mine, Kyle, and he is black and he reached out to me and he said, hey, you guys really didn't dig deep enough into what Black Panther was saying like the social commentary that it's making and the racial politics and everything else that it's about. And he was saying, did you not notice it because Mm. you were three white guys or did you feel that you were not justified in making those type of comments and I said well that's not really the realm of our silly movie podcast that's it's not necessarily our what we use our forum for but also to a certain extent yes what what could we have to say on that and because get out the focus of it really like the first three-fourths of the film again it's not really even a thriller it's kind of there's stuff going on but you focus 
focuses kind of on that racial naivete of affluent white society, how they could kind of remove the humanity from African-Americans by focusing on their race, you know, but then it adds a deeper, more sinister layer beyond that. So I'm going to do a very get out thing here, I guess. <laughs> Because Jeff and Judy, you guys are married. Judy, you're African-American. I am curious to know, what discussions did you guys have as you watched this film? Did you guys have conversations about that? Even the opening scene is Chris telling his girlfriend he's going to meet her parents. And he's like, did you tell them I'm black? And she's like, she's trying to assure that shouldn't matter. You know, but he's not so sure. He's got concerns about that. Even in your own personal dating life, did that ever come into play? Well, I mean, we end up talking about that kind of stuff all the time because of the world we live in. Like it comes up a lot just, I mean, in the news and just, yeah, in our, um, I don't, I wouldn't say we have a lot of experiences where that is like challenged at us, but it's just the world we live in. So we talk about that a lot. And um, I feel like we, yeah, try to be aware of that. And I think, yeah, after we watched that movie, I think it was kind of an interesting discussion we had. Um, Cause I'll just be honest. I think sometimes I can give Jeff a perspective he wasn't necessarily thinking about, but again, since we're married, that's one of the good things is that he's open so to that. And, um, you know, we can we can have an open discussion about that. So, yeah. So it was interesting for me even watching Get Out because I was explaining to him that, like, what makes the movie, I think, so good? Like the, the part of it that is brilliant is that it takes all these very common everyday feelings, interactions and scenarios that a black person would have just like all the time, like every day about like, I'm the only black person in the room or someone's like, hey, Obama. It's like, yeah, <laughs> great. Or yeah, that scenario of like, okay, so how is your family going to react to me being black or whatever? Like all these things that are very common um, situations for people. And it takes those normal I mean, unfortunately, normal and awkward things that happen and then it contextualizes them in the sense of like beyond just, you know, America's issues with race and turns mm -hmm. it into an actual like life and death thing, which, you know, happens in the real world as well. But it, it takes it to a different place. So you have this unsettling feeling the whole time of like, oh, these people are awkward. Oh, like that was an awkward comment. And then it's like. But it's not just race, like they're going to kill you. So um, so I think that's where the movie is brilliant, because for a black person, you're kind of used to like putting those comments in a certain context and like brushing them off or just expecting a certain amount of awkwardness, maybe in a certain scenario with certain people. And then in this movie, it's like, that's why he stuck around for so long. That's why he didn't get out. Right. And he's like, oh, your family, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, run for your life. So, <laughs> Like you said, though, it's relatable on that level. Then for the white audience, especially 30-something white male watching the film, I'm like, do I ever do that? And again, not just an African-American person, but am I doing it for my friends of many other races? I think uh, in a certain extent, you know, especially you guys live in California, growing up in California, it's a a little different because it really is a melting pot. So well, you're, it's you're funny. Kind of, yeah. It's funny that you say that because that that was like, and this is something that we have talked about as well. Is that it's weird that like in California, and not because because that was my perspective as well, Adam. Where it's like in California, we don't see as much like overt racism as if you went to parts of the South or you went to like you know the, the other places where 
there is literally like a cultural like bias or or separation but the the interesting thing is like in like even at our at our old church in Orange County where our church had maybe 5000 people at one time and there was probably two black people there and one of them was Judy and it's just like and she mentioned that a couple times where it's just like you don't know what that feels like and not that it's like not that it's racism that we think about but it's it's something like we saw in 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 Get Out, where it's like you kind of just get used to the fact that you don't look like everybody else, and that sometimes they talk differently to you, and you just end up kind of getting used to it. And like Judy said, I thought after I thought about it for a while, that was really what made this made this movie so interesting was the fact that it was as his friend kept saying, "Dude, you got to get out of there. You got to get out of there. They're all murderers." He's like, "No, they're just white people." Like. This is the way my life is. I live among white people and they act weird sometimes because I'm different than they are. And it's that scary thing that it's just like, could you really tell the difference between them acting weird and if they were like psychotic murderers who want to steal your body? Yeah. And I have to say, Catherine Keeter is the scariest member of the She cast. is so scary. And I'm suspicious of all suburban moms now. Like, I'm not taking tea from anybody. I'm just wow. like, I'm... Aren't you married to a suburban mom? <laughs> okay. I guess that's true. She checks out, though. I could I could vouch checks for her. Out. As long as she doesn't stir her tea too yeah, slowly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I just, yeah, that was, it's one of those movies that I feel like also is interesting because it pushes Blumhouse to the next level in terms of studio clout. Because again, like we said, up to this point, they've really been focusing on horror. And this is kind of like, you know, one quarter horror film and the rest is, is not. So they could really, I feel, branch out even further now than they have. And we may get some, you know, great productions. They take chances again on these up and coming writer directors who can really give us something great. And Guillermo del Toro even said in his speech also, right, he's talking about the youth of the world who are showing us the way and these new young filmmakers that are coming up. So I, I think it, it's exciting that, that Jordan Peele won that. Again, for the writing. I just, the writing of that film was so strong. I just feel, I was paying attention to the dialogue all throughout and I was just like, I love, I love, I love how natural this feels. Which is kind of an, and I don't know if we want to get into this in a little bit, but is that, I mean, obviously, and Jimmy Kimmel made note of it like by constantly referring to Black Panther with the idea that once again none of the top 10 grossing movies of the year were nominated for best picture and I feel like kind of like you mentioned Adam Dunkirk was maybe a little bit more blockbustery and then Get Out was a little bit more successful but it's then than your typical best best picture films but there's a part of that too that I think is also kind of sad where it's like that's kind of on us is that we're the ones that any hunk of junk that Marvel slaps their name on will pay to go see. But if it's something that's going to be a little bit different, that's going to be a little bit new, that's going to be a different form of, you know, film art, I don't know that we go and pay and see that. And then why would a studio waste their time, you know, making something like Get Out when they could just slap a superhero on it and make a billion dollars? Well, along that line, Blumhouse has already contracted a Spawn movie oh. written and produced by Todd McFarlane. And and that's in the wake of Get Out. So they don't actually have to make quality. They can do a superhero movie. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I read something or heard something recently where they're talking about every studio wants a superhero franchise because that's the moneymaker 
and then they want to go and use that money to make these little films because they see themselves right. as artists. They all want to be artists and have the prestige of having the Oscar and being the, you know, having these like artsy movies. But those don't pay the bills. Like, so it's this vicious circle of, you know, yeah, get Spawn in there so we can get more money and uh-huh. then we can make more artsy films. But in the end, we do get a larger diet of, you know, Marvel, DC, Star Wars. Like, that's all there is. And I feel to a certain extent, I actually mentioned this in last year's show, but I feel that it's a situation of, okay, so the studio has their ideas of what, of what they want to produce, yes. But at the same time, you don't need to see the Phantom Thread in a theater. Like, being there with the big sound system and seeing it on the big screen doesn't, I don't think, enhance that film but you need some you know when it is big like dunkirk yes you would need to have that full visceral experience you know but uh, that's what i'm saying like these smaller character driven films can be watched at the privacy of your own home and right. have just that's as much problem. of an effect so yeah Although, like you said pay the bills with a big blockbuster right. and because i was wondering i was thinking about that that same idea and i wonder if that's also though connected to the fact that it's now nineteen hundred dollars to actually see a movie in the big screen True. as opposed to a dollar fifty to rent a red box and so we're going to be willing to pay seventeen dollars or whatever to go see a marvel movie because of that experience but we're not going to be willing to pay that much money because on the other hand like you go back you know 15, 20 years, and the the Oscar movies were making money. Like, they were making good money because, hey, I've heard this movie is great. We got to go see it. But now I think that, you know, it's that thing, too, yeah, about that charging so much for movies, which I also think is directly related to them wanting to say, hey, we made a billion dollars. It's like, well, yeah, when you charge $100 to get in, like, that's only a thousand people or whatever. I, I, I would agree. I mean, I, I think there's definitely a cause and effect there, and it's just the way things are headed. But I feel like the film that managed to put a little bit of everything that all the other nominees for Best Picture maybe focused on one thing and headed in one direction in their style of filmmaking, The Shape of Water is a wonderful collage of all those things. It's got suspense. It's got the romance. It's got special effects. It's got a little bit of social com- not a little bit i mean it's got quite a bit of social commentary and not a superhero movie apparently no they keep not a sci-fi uh, repeating well, that i don't know if i buy that i mean like because well and for those of you guys that haven't is that yeah so the shape of water guillermo del toro has said multiple times this is not abe sapien from hellboy but it looks identical to him. <laughs> and he, he eats eggs, eggs, just like he Abe Sapien. classical music. It's played by the same actor. It's just like, come on, dude. Seriously? Is this just about copyright? It might be. I don't know. Well, the thing about it is, though, I didn't even hear about this film until Jeff mentioned it at the end of our show last week right. after we finished recording. And he's like, by the way, did you know The Shape of Water is a prequel to Hellboy? And I was like, wait, what? And it's nominated for Best Picture? Now I wanted to see it all of a sudden. Like, I literally <laughs> just finished watching it an hour before the show tonight. Oh, did you? Like, yeah, because I didn't hear about it. I heard more about Pacific Rim Uprising, which Del Toro isn't even directing this time around, than no. I did The Shape of Water, which is a oh. shame. Well, um, and that's the other part, too 
too, is Shape of Water is, I mean, it kind of had a limited, I mean, it's out in theaters right now, is that, so it kind of had oh, a limited cool. release. Okay, uh, so that's why I had to pay 14 bucks to buy it on iTunes, and I right. couldn't rent it. <laughs> but it's got a great cast to it. I mean, you get Michael Shannon as the villain, which is pretty interesting. You've got Russian, you know, spy intrigue. It's set in the 60s. Sally Hawkins is really the main character, and I only know her as the mom from the Paddington movie, which is a film <laughs> yeah. I really enjoyed. I thought she was great in that, so it was interesting to see her. And uh, also, have you guys noticed this too? It feels like there's a lot more deaf characters in films these days, especially this year. Like again, just saw Baby Driver. One of the characters there, major character, is yeah. deaf. There's a lot of sign language in Shape of Water. Again, she's not deaf, but she's yeah. mute, so she yeah. communicates with sign language. There, there's another one too that I'm blanking on right now, but I just think that's interesting. Again, that representation we're seeing more of it. But it, I just think it's a great achievement that a fantasy-based film can win so many big awards, like this in my best director and best picture and best what production design but it feels like it opens the door for a comic book film to get serious consideration one day you know we had logan get nominated so it's well except for i think we said the same thing when return of the king won and i don't <laughs> know oscar's kind of slow well, built <laughs> yeah and for me and like because we watched shape of water which which by the way question for you adam now the version that we watched all of the scenes with the Russians had no subtitles, so we didn't understand what they were saying. Is that the way it was supposed to be? Well, I watch every movie with subtitles on, so okay. I don't know the difference. So I, I got the translation for subtitles and for the sign language. Did you have sign language oh. subtitles? No. Well, we didn't have any subtitles, so no, literally really. they were, we just had to try and pretend like we spoke Russian. That would be a totally different experience than watching the film, yeah, because I had subtitles all throughout. Interesting. You can figure it out, but it was like exactly. Oh, this doesn't feel right. Right, right. So that's what. Unless, unless that was the point, like because she didn't speak, and so then we were supposed to not right. understand. Well, but I, I know, know a little sign language, so that helps. Right, right. Yeah, I'll have to look into that because yeah, I'm yeah. curious to know then if that was his intention. Yeah. The thing for me, and that was one of the reasons that I really wanted to make sure that I saw Get Out and Shape of Water, both of those specifically looked like movies that I wouldn't expect to be nominated, kind of like Mad Max Fury Road. And my thought is that if it is nominated, there's the potential that this is a movie that transcends its genre and actually becomes greater than its intent. And for me, I kind of look at movies like, well, I was it was just the anniversary of Groundhog Day. And Groundhog Day, which started off as, you know, this kind of like silly comedy, ended up becoming this really poignant movie about the meaning of life. City Slickers is another perfect example of that, where it started off as a comedy and then it, it became so much more. And for me, well, two things happened. For me, when I watched both Get Out and Shape of Water, I don't know that I felt that happened. I don't know that it was necessarily like, wow, they used their art to teach me something about life and blow my mind in, in that sort of a way. I didn't feel like that happened. But then on the same side, I then reflected back on other Oscar winners. I don't think that's what Oscar winners do. Usually Oscar, and that was one of the reasons that when Crash won, I was so blown away because I think Crash did that. But usually Oscar likes, you know, Forrest Gump. Oscar likes movies that just are dramas that do what they do and do it well. And trying to push us, I don't think that's really Oscar's thing. So I don't know. All that to be said, then Shape of Water in that vein does kind of fit, I think. 
But I don't know that it's something that I'm going to buy on DVD and watch a hundred times between now and the day I die. Well, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, it definitely has a fairy tale style, as most of his films do, right. Pan's Labyrinth and all of that. He, that's this, the, uh, this, the genre he works in. And so it has very archetypal characters. It's not an innovative story at all. There's a mm-hmm. monster that's misunderstood. There's people who are prejudiced. There's, we've seen this type of thing in movies before and in superhero movies before and in everything else. It almost has like bits of La La Land in it too from last year. You know, it's got a musical element to it. The fact that it really gels as a film despite all those influences. I mean, it reminded me of that French film Amelie from the 90s. I don't know Mm. if you guys ever saw that in a film appreciation class, but it it very much had like a European sensibility to it. Mm. So I, I think like you said, Jeff, the fact that it's pushing some issues in your face but at the same time it doesn't upset you with it i guess is what i would say it's almost a mild gentle introduction to those concepts is probably why it won rather than something like get out that's so in your face about it and then like i said has that that twist at the end where you're like okay well maybe that's a little over the top like you got us three-fourths of the movie you really had a solid film and then at the end you hit us with the jolt of adrenaline and maybe that kind of made it fall out of favor i don't know Mm -hmm. that it's not a a wholly cohesive film altogether. I mean, again, I think Get Out's great for what it is and the way it's laid out, but I, I think to your point, that's not what Oscar likes in that's the true. end. Yeah. Coco winning Best Animated Film and Best Original Song. Do you guys have an opinion either way on that? Did you want Boss Baby to win? <laughs> <laughs> no. Boss Baby all the way. That's true, because we didn't see, we didn't see, you didn't see Coco either, right? No. No. Really? Although from what I heard, because you guys both did, right? Yeah. And from what I heard, that that song when you watch the movie like that was their like the intro to up where everybody in the theater was just bawling down crying when that, that song came on well it, and it's used in two different ways throughout the film Correct. which is why when you see the real origin of the song that's when it's heartbreaking where it feels like just this throwaway ballad for the majority of the film and then as this mystery unfolds and you learn all these truths you're like whoa it really hits you because and this is actually the it has a special place in my heart just because it's the first movie my entire family lasted all the way through in theaters just a few months ago. <laughs> we tried with Lego That's Batman. The kids didn't quite have the attention span with that. So they and they love skeletons, so that may have had something to do with it. Uh, but but it was it's a really stunningly beautiful film just from a design standpoint as well. It's just visually beautiful to watch, and then the fact that they have a decent story in there, plus that you don't have a big name celebrity distracting you with terrible voice acting or just taking you out of the story because oh it's this person yeah so it's like the story of the family the story that's in the film stands on its own because that's all you're looking at Mm. there's nothing else attached to it that is supposed to give it hype that's how pixar that's that's their thing it's never about the name was there any best song that you guys felt like i i felt particularly that the this is me from the greatest showman was a pretty impressive production like i didn't like the way coco was represented at the show i didn't think the performances were very strong vocally but that this is me with all that that whole stage of different types of people singing and i guess that actress was the bearded lady in the movie you know so it, i thought that was pretty intense and a, a pretty emotional moment for the the event yeah i thought this year was the first year in a while where i thought all the songs were like good i was like oh that's a good song like every single 
One of them, I thought, had merit. I was kind of pulling for the song from Call Me By Your Name just because I'm a huge Sufjan Stevens fan. But I did not expect him to win because that doesn't... Neither did he. He did not <laughs> Um, If you watch, because I've been like trying to get the word out about this because I watched his face when they announced the winner. And before they cut away from him, it looks like he says, yes, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> so... <laughs> As a notoriously shy person, I was kind of like, that is hilarious. (laughs) But yeah, that's not usually the type of song that wins. So um, I thought it was going to go to Mary J. Blige just because, you know, they like, like we said, they like to give it to living legends when they can. But the song from Coco, I know a lot of people really liked. So, All right. Well, did you guys have any other moments that stood out for you or other categories? Anything else you wanted to bring up before we get into the second half of the show? Um, It's pretty cool to see Roger Deakins win. He's, yeah. again, one of those living legends where... He could have won so many other times. Yeah, nice to see him finally get that award. So, yeah, it was a pretty tame year, I thought. Although I did spend a lot of time texting with my brother about when they went to the theater to bring the normal people snacks and stuff. And I was like, okay, if Wonder Woman walks into a theater I'm in, I will be genuinely, like, excited. (laughs) And then if... Um, Luke Skywalker walks yeah. in with Lin Manuel Miranda, then I'm dead. Like, <laughs> I literally just die. <laughs> so she so just kept saying, "This is so minutes. much better than the Oscars." I felt bad. I was like, "Should you really be saying that, Gal? I don't know about that." <laughs> Trying to make them feel good. I actually thought the one of the funnier moments for me, too, is if you want to say, like, was this standout or kind of shocking was I don't I don't know who the other actress was that came out with Maya Rudolph, but just oh. they were just so animated and so excited. And the jokes they were making, again, were a little racially charged. Mm-hmm. Like you could hear some nervous laughter in the crowd. So I thought they were pretty good. And also when Jimmy Kimmel asked Steven Spielberg, he's like, so what do you, what do, you do? Well, I'm married to Kate Capshaw. Oh, OK, I've heard Heard of her? He's like, yeah. but then he's just all of a sudden. Do you have any pot? Steve was like, what? Do you have any pot? And he reaches into his coat. I was like, what? <laughs> I guess nice for playing along, Steven. But that one yeah. was out of nowhere. With his improbability, yeah, <laughs> to like come up with that line. Maybe he didn't come up with it, but it seemed like he did. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I thought Maya Rudolph and I think it was Tiffany. Is it Tiffany Haddish? I don't remember her name. Um, I just thought like they were a breath of fresh air because everyone else was like really stiff. For the most part, so um, even when they were trying to be like, ha, we're making a joke, it was like, I don't know, not very funny, so. Yeah, and I think Jennifer yeah. Lawrence was a little tipsy when she came out with Holly Hunter. Uh, no, was it Holly Hunter? No, who was it? It was, Jody uh, yeah, Jodie Foster. I always get them mixed up. <laughs> They're basically the same actress. But no, but I, I just thought, because she kept like talking, and I improved that. You know, she's just dropping stuff in here and there. And they were just joking around. So I thought, same with Jane Fonda. Yeah, and look at this set. It looks like something out of Barbarella. Anyway, I just there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on here and there but uh yeah like you said nothing super stand out as far as a shocking moment yeah no um, roberto benini jumping over the seat you know no none of that this year <laughs> so that was the oscars jeremy why don't you introduce our next segment tell them a little bit about what's going on here well we're we're taking a deep dive and because it's an oscars weekend follow-up however you want to call it 
we're going to take a deep dive into Oscar's Best Picture category. And we've had 90 of these, so we've challenged each other to come up with a sequel to a Best Picture winner. All right. And so, Judy, as our guest, why don't you go first and tell us what you had in mind, what film you chose? Okay, well, I went back to 1951 to a movie called An American in Paris, partly because I don't know what I've said about myself on this podcast, but I do have a master's degree in film, TV, and media studies, and I spent a year writing my thesis on musicals. So it was kind of like default setting. What movie do I know the best that I could come up with a sequel? I was like, oh, well, I've seen this movie hundreds of times, it feels like. So that was an easy one for me. I'm going to assume many of us have not seen that movie because it is quite old. But basically, it is a Gene Kelly movie who's delightful. Um, Leslie Caron is in it. Oscar Levant is in it. And it's about an American GI who's living in Paris after World War II. He's a painter. He has this woman who is kind of into him, who acts as his like patron. And there's kind of that tension there. He's not really into her. He's actually in love with this other girl played by Leslie Caron, who is dating this French stage singer. And so there's a little love triangle or square or whatever about like, you know, she's in love with uh, the Gene Kelly character, but she feels loyal to her French boyfriend. And there's a lot of beautiful singing and dancing. All the music is George Gershwin. And then it's famous for, and probably the reason why it won the Oscar is that at the end of the movie, and this was very common at the time, is that in the middle of a musical or towards the end, they would kind of do like an extended dance sequence, which maybe retells the movie, but just when dance or some sort of out of the story, just like, okay, we're just going to dance for like 15 minutes, just like chill and watch all our amazing dancing. And it was a really chance to show off a lot of artistry. And the one from An American Paris, I mean, if you want to just go watch that, it's gorgeous. Like it is amazing dancing um, covering like tap dancing ballet like modern jazz and then also the sets that they use for this ballet it's it's a fantasy sequence in um, gene kelly's head but they use all these different french styles like famous artists as their like mode for how they design the sets so it looks like impressionism it's just amazing piece of artistry that they did and so and judy this is not the one where gene kelly dances with a cartoon mouse no, unfortunately, no. This that was Rats. um on that was Anchors Away, another okay. awesome movie, and it's not the one where he sings and dances in the rain. Oh um, yes, which hmm. was singing what in the rain. What was that one called? Yeah, singing <laughs> in the rain, which came out a few years later. So this is the one. I don't know if like what the famous scene would be, but there like if you've seen a shot of him dancing in like this beautiful fountain with these like amazing colors and lights behind him, that's from that. And again, oh, it's the one where he sings and dances to I Got Rhythm. If you remember that, and there's all these little French children, like I Got Rhythm. That's maybe a clip you might have seen here and there. But it's a delightful movie. You should all see it. So that's the background. That's where we're at. So obviously they end up together at the end and, all you know, everyone's happy. Ta-da! So my sequel, I decided would take place a few years later. So it's like 1955 or something. And they are engaged. I don't know why they're still engaged. It's kind of a long time based on <laughs> but whatever. So they're like engaged and they're still living in Paris. 
and Lise is the female lead from the first movie. So she is managing Jerry, which is the Gene Kelly character, his art career. They sell, they have a little shop and he sells prints of his paintings. And then he also does um, his own pieces. And so they have this little life that they're kind of building together in France. But um, I was trying to think of, okay, the first movie was really characterized by amazing songs by George Gershwin. Like, what would you, you know, how do you top that? But since it's 1955 or so, um, I thought we should go with Elvis because, you know, Elvis, that he can provide <laughs> yeah, all the music. The king. All right. Um, and so it turns out that Elvis is in France. I don't know why, but whatever. He's in France <laughs> as himself. It's Elvis. Of course. Um, and he goes into their shop and he's trying to get art for his, you know, Graceland mansion or whatever. And he kind of takes a little liking to Lise, but also, you know, she she's kind of the one running the business and she's very cultured. And so he invites her to come back with him to America to help decorate and set up, you know, the Graceland mansion. And I don't I don't really know what Graceland is, actually. I'm assuming there's a lot of mansion stuff. So they talk about it and she decides to go to America with Elvis. And so Jerry stays behind. And at the same time, as she's kind of getting close to Elvis. Elvis and maybe falling in love with Elvis. She's pulling away from Jerry. His career is really taking off and he's just outgrowing her because she's a lot younger than him in the film because they always are. So they kind of break up over long distance and just have to remember that there's all these songs and dances at this point. So, you know, picture very sad dancing and stuff um, <laughs> to some Elvis song. Get the catalog out. And then the resolution is that he is invited to go to New York for some, you know, art show. So he goes to New York and it happens to be the Elvis is in town, obviously playing. And as all romantic musicals resolve, all he does is see her and then the music plays in his head and you get another extended dance sequence and they realize we should be together and they kiss in the end. And that is that's a movie. So it's an American in Paris, too. Or you could change it to the title being a Parisian in Memphis. Ooh, I like it. Yeah. Although they end up in New York, an American in New York. That doesn't. That's that doesn't just work. what it is. Not Parisian in the I states. Yeah. So yes. Yeah, so there's my sequel to an American in Paris. All songs by Elvis. All right. Except for Elvis doesn't get the girl. Wow. That happened. Maybe he can get another girl. Maybe he there's another girl. girl. He gets the girl, the, the rich girl from the first movie. Well, I have to say, typically in these movies, that when the guy who doesn't get the girl at the end, you know, when it comes out that she's going to you know the hero they're very happy about it it's very amicable because that's how the first of the end is that her boyfriend drives her back to gene kelly and kind of like bye good luck and he's like super cool with it so elvis was similarly like wow you know what you guys are so great together i'm just like so happy for you i love it musical magic all right jeff what do you got uh well although i still want to i'm still trying to picture what sad dancing looks like <laughs> Uh, it's so a lot of foot my dragging. sequel is from the Academy Award winner 1992, I think, Dances with Wolves. If you've never seen Dances with Wolves, it's about Dunbar. He is a Civil War soldier who ends up wanting to go to the frontier because the frontier is disappearing in 1865. So he goes out and ends up serving all by himself at this lone outpost that is abandoned for one reason or another. 
Uh, and then he ends up interacting with the Sioux, finds out that they're, you know, much more than the savages that he'd come to expect, ends up forming a relationship, especially with the one woman that is there. Uh, they call her Stands with Fist, and uh, they end up falling in love, et cetera, et cetera. Then the army does show up and they say, hey, you got to help us get rid of these uh, these Indians. And so he doesn't want to. So then they arrest him. But then there's this big conflict. And ultimately, he ends up taking stands with fist and leaving in that end where the, oh, what's his name? Winds in his hair is standing on the cliff face and going, can't you see I am your friend? Oh, that's so beautiful. Anyway, so the sequel will take place 15 years later and it's gonna be called, appropriately, Stands with Fist. So 15 years later, Dances with Wolves and Stands with Fist have been moving around, constantly kind of fleeing the US military because Dances with Wolves is still being hunted by the military because he's considered a traitor and an outlaw. They're never really able to stay in one place very long, so they kind of go from tribe to tribe. As they interact, they're very aware of the problems that the white man brings to the Sioux, but they believe very strongly that the solution is not to fight. And especially at this point, 15 years later, this is right in the middle of the Sioux War. Uh, Little Bighorn just happened, so that's a very controversial kind of concept. So their belief is always, if it ever comes up, you should just run. You should never stand and fight. So every Sioux tribe that they end up meeting with, they kind of have a different reaction because they are white. Some of them are more welcoming. Some of them just immediately say, get out. And that's one of the reasons they have to constantly move. uh, In addition to the fact of, yeah, just kind of being worried about the military catching up to them uh, and, you know, the the consequences for the, the Sioux that that would entail. So they end up at one point in one tribe of Sioux that are religious fanatics. And their leader kind of explains that he has had a vision of the white man's Jesus and that he came to me in a vision and he said that he will come and take away the white invaders. And so they do this thing that they call the ghost dance. It's a real specific dance that is essentially one of their prayers that's designed to bring this about, is that they believe if they continue to do the ghost dance, then the white man's Jesus will come and take all the white men away. In seeing that, obviously, you know, Dances with Wolves and Sands with Fists are very nervous about this new thing because they feel like the white people are not going to like that and that could stir up some hostility if this idea spreads. They end up having to move move again and as they kind of continue visiting more and more tribes, they start seeing the ghost dance kind of appearing more and more, kind of like slowly, like maybe one person brings it in and people are like, what's going on? Then they go to another tribe and maybe like 10 people are doing it. It's just, it seems like it's growing and growing. So finally, they end up setting their sights on getting to basically where the tribe that is led by Sitting Bull. So at this point, Sitting Bull is actually a celebrity. He's been working with Wild Bill Hickok in the show. He knows Annie Oakley personally. Again, the white men love him because he's this celebrity, essentially. And he's he's this really wise character who's speaking about peace and cooperation. And so both Dances with Wolves and Stands with Fists really feel like, okay, this guy gets it. And now, finally, maybe we've found a home that we can settle down in and we can be here for a while. But after a short while, soldiers come with orders to arrest Sitting Bull because they've heard the rumor that he is actually joined or one of the leaders of this ghost dance movement. And he isn't, but that's what they have heard. 
So they come in and they're going to arrest him, but a skirmish ensues. And at this point, Sitting Bull is like 80 years old. And so they're fighting with this 80-year-old man. And tragedy strikes where a gun goes off and Sitting Bull is killed. And in the, the midst of this tragedy and kind of dealing with this tragedy, Dances with Wolves takes over the lead because now he's kind of well-respected, kind of being the right hand of Sitting Bull. And so he rallies these people together because he's heard of another leader named Spotted Elk, who is well-known as maybe the greatest peacekeeper in all of the Sioux tribe to go to the Cheyenne River and join Spotted Elk and his group. So he meets Spotted Elk, this great man of peace, and it turns out that Spotted Elk has not only converted to the ghost dance, but he is a firm believer that all of his followers should be doing this, like this is the way to the future, is that doing this ghost dance, praying for this to happen, because if we just pray enough, then the white man will, like, they'll take the white man and they'll go away. So Dances Wolves with Fist kind of try and say like, hey, this is trouble. Every time that we've seen this come up, like this has not gone well for the Sioux people. Uh, and sure enough, days later, uh, a battalion arrives and they arrest the entire tribe. Spotted Elk, though, is a man of peace. He surrenders immediately and just says, you know, we'll go along peacefully. But then the next day, the soldiers come into the town and they aggressively demand all of the weapons. Spotted Elk tells people, okay, just turn over your weapons, go ahead and do that. But the soldiers are really treating the, the Sioux like they're subhumans and they're, they're pushing people around and stuff like that. And so sure enough, eventually, conflict breaks out. They shove somebody and somebody shoves back. Guns come out and soldiers just start opening fire. And this would be, I would kind of expect this as kind of the, cli the climax of the movie. This would be one of those kind of like either silent or kind of like somber music playing as this is kind of happening in slow motion. And sh soldiers just opening fire and killing dozens and dozens of men and women and children. And Spotted Elk comes out of his tent trying to stop all of this. And a, and a soldier turns to go shoot him and dances with wolves, pushes him out of the way and dances with wolves, gets shot. And then Spotted Elk gets shot as well. And then at the end of the carnage, you just see that just like, you know, hundreds of people have been killed. And so I would kind of see the conclusion of the movie being stands with fists walking around and seeing the carnage and obviously, you know, crying over not only dances with wolves, but all of this. And if you remember the original movie, she doesn't talk a lot because she's not comfortable with the, the English language as much as she prefers speaking the Sioux language. So stands with fists, walks up to the soldiers that still have their guns drawn. And I would just kind of see this movie concluding with her literally standing with a fist towards these soldiers, just essentially saying no more. And then we end in a very happy sort of way. <laughs> wow. That's yeah. pretty intense. Yeah. I, I knew it had to be something with Costner if it was going to be Jeff. So <laughs> right. uh, there you go. You know, what's funny, though, Jeff, is that was produced by Orion Pictures, Dances <laughs> with Wolves. So they would have had to make that sequel pretty quick because after years of failures, including Three Amigos that we covered last week, <laughs> you know, they finally got their Academy Award winning film with Dances with Wolves. Then the next year with Silence of the Lambs got a bunch of Academy Awards.
billboards, but it wasn't enough to keep them afloat. They had to sell their catalog off by the time the 90s had started. So, like, we would have had to put that in production pretty quick. Interesting. Well, it was funny because I was reading that because the, well, Dances with Wolves was actually an original story that the guy wrote the script and then, or, well, he kind of wrote the script, then he turned it into a book, and then the script became a movie, so it was technically considered adapted. But he did write a sequel, which has been, they've been trying to put into production ever since. It's not your sequel? No, 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 no. Okay. It's, it's more of like a Stands With Fist gets captured, and then Dances With Wolves has to like go and rescue her or something like that. Okay. But that apparently they're wanting to make it into a TV miniseries. And I don't remember who they said. Was it Antonio Banderas? It was somebody else that they were going to cast as, which Antonio <laughs> wouldn't make any sense if that's who it said. No. But uh, yeah. somebody else that they were they were going to cast as, uh, as Dunbar. Very interesting. All right. Well, my film goes back a little bit. It's kind of in between Jeff and Judy's era of best picture films. I went back to the late 70s and i picked a film called kramer versus kramer (laughs) so for those who don't know kramer versus kramer won best picture in 1979 with dustin hoffman and meryl streep it was actually her first film so that's where it all began for meryl streep and they were playing recently divorced parents that were battling in court for custody of their son and it was a real you know, serious drama. It was a depiction of what was viewed as kind of a real social crisis in society at the time, which is a situation we kind of take for granted now. Who doesn't have a couple divorces under their belt, right? But, but back then, Not it was this I. big. Yeah. <laughs> Jeremy okay, still waiting. Yeah, Jeff, Jeff and Judy hanging on strong. <laughs> so as a child of divorce myself, it certainly struck a chord with me. And that's why I wanted to dig deeper into that world, find out what happened to the kids and his life and all that. So mm-hmm. I bring you Kramer versus Kramer versus Godzilla. Oh, and- <laughs> Psych! No, so no, that's actually my title. Um, but I can't take credit for this idea, at least the concept, because it's inspired by a character played by Rob Reiner in the Return of Spinal Tap concert special. He's the director of Spinal Tap called Marty DeBerge. And it's one of my favorite movie-based pun gags of all time, where basically he says... I'm doing pretty well. I, uh, I did a feature... After uh, after Spinal Tap was finished, I did uh, Kramer versus Kramer versus Godzilla, which uh, was um, it didn't work as well as I thought it would. I thought the juxtapositions of the you know the 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 the, the Stummendrang of uh, uh, of you know which parent is going to get the child you know with Godzilla looming you know over all of them you know like maybe the Godzilla is going to get the child. You know, and that uh, I thought would be interesting, but uh, it turned out the audience didn't take to it as as well as I thought they would. So my first initial pitch was, let's just cut in footage of Godzilla into the original film so that every time it's a close-up on Meryl Streep, it's just Godzilla screeching and breathing fire. And I will tell you, there actually is a goofy ballad on YouTube. Some, like, jazz band wrote Kramer versus Kramer versus Godzilla. And then there's a poorly edited trailer with Godzilla footage intercut, like, at the very end. But I want a whole film where they did that. You know, I just I want to see somebody really make that a project. However, that is not what we're doing here tonight. So here is my pitch for Kramer versus Kramer versus Godzilla. 
Now, following the events of the first film, we see a montage that Ted Kramer, Dustin Hoffman's character, and his son, Billy, have lived a normal life together with occasional visits from Billy's mother, Joanna, who was played by Meryl Streep. Though Joanna has really been jumping from wealthy man to wealthier man all over the world. She's become like this tabloid sensation. And she eventually marries the emperor of Japan. <laughs> so, wow. And Ted, Good. Dustin Hoffman's character, eventually married his neighbor girlfriend margaret who becomes billy's loving stepmother and really was the one who was there for him all those years upon his graduation from high school billy decides to join the navy as a pilot and have the government pay for his college to take the financial burden off his father billy tells ted that this is my thank you present for all the sacrifices that you and margaret made for me and you should spend all that college money you were saving up to go on that honeymoon you never had you know you always wanted to see Japan go to Japan so now we jump six months later and Ted and Margaret are visiting various Japanese landmarks while Joanne and her husband Emperor Hiroyuki are notified of a strange disturbance in the ocean where two Japanese naval ships have been sunk which the Emperor chooses to ignore suspiciously meanwhile Billy is going out on his first test flight from a US aircraft carrier in the Pacific Ocean that is just happening to cross over these troubled Japanese waters so the Emperor and his wife are scheduled to make a public appearance and in doing so run into Ted and Margaret and they're invited to dinner with them that night. The meal is interrupted as they're told that now an American plane has gone down in that same deadly area of the Pacific and when it's revealed that Billy was manning the plane that disappeared, Ted and Margaret urge the Emperor to send out a rescue mission but he refuses. They plead with Joanna who stonewalls them as well. The Emperor reveals that he knows what is going on out there and it's better for his nation to ignore the problem. Leaving it a huff, Ted goes to the American embassy, who also tell him it's best to let it go. Unable to accept this, Ted charters a plane and flies out there himself, only to find that within the raging storm, there is none other than the mighty Godzilla awakened. He also spots the American fighter jet containing his son floating in the ocean and lands in the water to rescue him. So Emperor Hiroyuki radios them within Ted's plane and is informed of the monster headed for the shores of Tokyo once again. And after naval ships and planes from Japan are unsuccessful in stopping Godzilla, Ted and Billy... All during while all this is going on, are seeing a glowing light beneath the waves. Just then, Joanna and Margaret arrive at a Japanese boat with diving equipment, and they're told that they are now an unsanctioned covert team meant to retrieve the glowing radioactive mineral that has kept Godzilla subdued for decades within the ocean. So back in Tokyo, Godzilla's reached the shores. He's destroying the Japanese metropolis, and the emperor is asked about activating his Shogun protocol, but refuses. Back in the ocean, there's all this personal drama between Ted and Joanna and Margaret while Billy is tired of the bickering and dives into the waves and almost attaches the retraction hook to the boulder-like mineral but is attacked by a giant sea urchin who's mutated under the waves and is attached to the underside. The parents now must band together to save their son and the mineral, which they do, but one of the spines of the giant urchin punctures the boat and they're slowly sinking. It's then, upon learning this, that the Emperor activates 
his Shogun warrior, a giant robot. He pilots himself, and the Shogun flies out to sea to pick up the Kramers and the Mineral before engaging in a final battle with Godzilla. The Shogun nearly succeeds in placing the Mineral Necklace back on Godzilla, but it's destroyed, and the Emperor with it. Billy then pilots a construction crane that flings the shackles with the Mineral onto Godzilla, causing the beast to become comatose, and the giant lizard is dragged back out to his ocean prison. The heroic Billy then tells the trio of parents that he loves them all and that they together caused him to become the man who saved Tokyo. Kramer versus Kramer versus Godzilla for your consideration. (laughs) Wait, so why was the Emperor so, like, not willing to do anything? Well, because he was just hoping, he was ignoring it, hoping that Godzilla wouldn't wake up. He's like, stuff's going on out there, but hopefully it's just an isolated incident. We can't, we don't want to, you know, irritate him more was the Mm -hmm. idea. I see. I thought you were gonna you were gonna make uh, the sequel to Kramer versus Kramer be over the top and it includes oh. arm wrestling. You know, <laughs> just swap it out. Yeah, just dust it off and for Stallone. Yeah, that was a pretty good movie. You know what it was missing? Arm wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh. So yes, there you have it. Jeremy, what did you have? All right, this is a sequel to James Cameron's 1997 blockbuster Titanic. Oh. Titanic oh, 2, Jack's Return. Oh my gosh, he's a zombie. <laughs> He doesn't know what or how or why he's alive. Last thing he remembers is the cold, oh-so-cold waters of the Atlantic and Rose. Yes, releasing Rose's hands, sinking, sinking, sinking into the deep. Just kidding. You can't sequelize Titanic. Oh, come on. <laughs> you, you could say The Shape of Water is a sequel to Titanic. He turns into a fish man. <laughs> Titanic is the prequel. Or could he meet Godzilla? Was Godzilla the cause? It was not an iceberg. Godzilla no, no, on no. Vacation. <laughs> All right. So I do have one. It's called Forrest Gumpier. <laughs> Good. And it picks up kind of where we left off with Forrest Gump, where Jenny just died. He now has his son in his care, and he's a millionaire as well, because he invested in Apple. Apple took off and became a millionaire overnight. So we can follow along because it's a it's a dual story. It would be... The the thing we loved about Forrest Gump was him interacting with all of these historic moments, right? Mm-hmm. So there's been plenty of historic moments he can interact with since 1980. Of course, we can pay homage to some of the some of the stuff that he's been through, make him an activist for the AIDS research, have him meet a digitally recreated Ronald Reagan introducing him to the Macintosh with a graphical user interface. All the while, he's got his son that's aging right along with him. Major events like Chernobyl happening through the eyes of Forrest. Not that he was physically there, but watching it on TV, kind of like a lot of people found out about the news. Uh, The first computer virus. It was an accidental thing Forrest caused. (laughs) The tearing down of the Berlin Wall. Now, here's where he can start interacting with some of these events. So by 1992, his son would be old enough to start visiting college campuses. Kind of the recruitment process. And so 
I would have him head out to L.A. and somehow be around where the Rodney King beating happened by the police. Stuff like that. A couple years later, now that his son's going to school out in L.A. area, we can fudge with the location, make it work. But have him driving down the highway when a white Bronco drives past in 1994. <laughs> mm. Be part of the highway chase. Um, I, I could see Forrest as engaging with the youth based on just who he is with the first Harry Potter book coming out in 1997. Engaging and seeing the news and talking about what went down in 1998 when Bill Clinton was accused of his shenanigans. Also the Y2K scare. I don't know, maybe it's something he started, relive some history with what somebody who's been through the various wars that Forrest did, seeing 9-11. Also, in 2003, he'd be about 59 years old. His kid, Little Forrest, would be about 28. We could have a shared experience there of the shuttle Columbia blowing up and then also flashing back to Forrest remembering what happened in 86 when the Challenger did and have just a, a shared experience there. And of course, having a crotchety old Forrest Gump at age 66 dealing with Obama winning the presidency in Wait, the vote. How old is crotchety? Well, he'd be 66. 66 is crotchety? Well, oh, it depends. <laughs> so there's all sorts of little little fun stuff we can get throughout there. But that's kind of the, the major events I was thinking we could relive mm. through the eyes of Forrest Gump and his son, Little Forrest. Yeah. Now, Jeremy, I don't know if you did any research on this and pulled the Jeff, but you know, th there was a rumored sequel to Forrest Gump. There's actually a sequel novel that oh, came out. Oh, I did not. You didn't know about this. And no. It, basically, the reason it never got made is the Forrest Gump sequel novel is just crazy. <laughs> just some highlights here, because you actually hit on one of them, was that Forrest would be in, in the back of the White Bronco with OJ. <laughs> oh, he'd be in the back? Wow. Yeah, actually with him. Um, they're like, Forrest goes broke. He becomes a football <laughs> player for the New Orleans Saints. Oh, that's um, just cruel. Creates the formula for new Coke, you know, and <laughs> he crashes the Exxon Valdez. What? Fights in Operation Desert Storm. And then he actually uh, was an astronaut at one point. So I don't know if that was supposed to be poking fun at Apollo 13. But the craziest <laughs> one is that Jenny's ghost keeps appearing to what? him throughout the novel. So uh, there's just a lot of craziness. So I think you chose some more, you yeah, know, well done, <laughs> reasonable. Even more so. Well, yeah. and I, I wouldn't, I don't even see like that working with just based on age wise. He <laughs> go to desert storm at age 48 yeah <laughs> like, I don't know, unless whatever. he's like a general or something i i don't see that it's working ride yeah <laughs> he ran there <laughs> yeah <laughs> well good i think this is is a fun exercise <laughs> who knows what we'll be doing for next year's oscar show but thank you everybody for joining us in this case, I don't think we plan to vote for best Oscar sequel pitch. I think we just take them as they are. Yeah, They're I all think so. Nominees. We're all winners. Decide. It's an honor just to make just one up. Just to be nominated. 
Oh, but Judy, again, thanks for coming with us. You know, thanks we know about your us. your educational background now, so we understand you're much more qualified to be here than us every week. So <laughs> whatever you want. <laughs> we'll mention we have a 10 years of the Marvel Cinematic Universe you can look forward to. That'll be one of our upcoming sequel chats as we go into the Infinity War film. We've actually gotten some offers from people that want to be involved, maybe talking about a Tron 3, talking about maybe a lethal weapon sequel down the road who knows we got suggestions coming on twitter we're happy to to feel them and see what we can do with it so stay connected and uh until next time and to my kids go to bed we hope you enjoyed this episode of sequel quest and invite you to join us next week for another discussion about a film that never was share your ideas with the sequel quest universe by visiting sequelquestpod.com following us on twitter at sqpod on facebook by searching sequel quest or sending an email to sequelquestpod at gmail.com let the world know how much you enjoy the show by leaving a review and five-star rating on iTunes. All films and characters discussed on Sequel Quest are the property of their respective studios and license holders. No copyright infringement is intended. 